Welcome to a Pulp Event Podcast, brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 25 years. Online at thepulp.net. In this Pulp Event Podcast, a panel consisting of Tony Davis, Don Hutchison, Sarah Light Waller, Walker Martin, and PulpFest Chair Jack Cullors, reflect on 50 years of PulpFest. William Lampkin, editor at the PulpNet, moderates. The panel was recorded on Thursday, August 4, 2022, at PulpFest 50 in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. William begins. So I'm not going to be doing a whole lot of talking tonight. I'm going to let these folks talk because they're the experts in PulpFest and PulpCons. Just starting on the end, let's let everybody introduce yourself and say when you first started attending PulpCon or PulpFest. Jack? Uh, my first one was... Probably 74 or 75, my memory fails me. Um, I know it was right about that time. Uh, that's all I can tell you, you know. <laughs> okay, uh, I had to do research, I can't remember. I, I like to think I went to PulpCon Zero, which was back in 1967 at the World Science Fiction Convention in New York City. Uh, Rusty Heaven and Bob Weinberg, Fred Cook, people I knew through correspondence and trading pulp magazines with young Bob, uh, they formed a, a Doc Savage Club meeting and we got together, at tw- at, I wrote it down, so Sunday, September 2nd at 12 noon, we had this meeting and we had a great time talking about pulps. We had corresponded but we never met in person. At the end of it, we said, boy, wouldn't it be great if we could do this every year? This was like, I guess, four years before, at least four or five years before that actually happened. But um, my, I would have gone to all, of, like Walker, I, w- I think I would have gone to all of the pulps, but I was working in the film industry for television, and uh, I was just too busy in the summertime for a long time to... Um, go in July to a convention. I think my first convention, I had to look it up, was 1982 uh, in Dayton, Ohio. I see that because John Nanovic was the uh, guest of honor. And I remember Will Murray, very generously, who met me at that convention, said, I'm having a meeting with John. I'm going to have a chat. Would you like to join us? So I did. And that was why I remember very well my first PulpCon. Was I supposed to have talked that much? I'll cede my time to Jack. It, it's a full hour. Tony Davis. Uh, I first came to PulpCon in 1990 because the guy next to me, Don Hutchison, said, "Hey, I'm, guys, I'm going off to a pulp convention in the states." So it sounds interesting. I knew about pulps. I later learned Mike Chomko was going to be there, so you know it was certainly worthwhile going, and met a lot of amazing people and. That kind of led me to chatting to Rusty, whose name comes up and certainly comes up in the Pulpster, to talk about chapbooks and things like that. And then next thing I knew, I was involved with the Pulpster. And thank you to Bill at the other end of the table for keeping it alive and going. I think it provides a valuable service. So certainly, I've enjoyed every time I've had a chance, even when they closed the border to Canadians coming into the U.S. last year. But we made it this year. Glad you're back Okay, I'm Walker Martin. I started in 1972, 
the very first uh, PulpCon. As far as I know, uh, I'm one of the uh, oldest at this convention and one of the youngest in 1972. So a lot has happened in those 50 years. Well, I'm Sarah Lightwaller, and um, I'm the newbie of the group because I started coming in uh, 2018. Uh, but uh, I'd spend a lot of time at science fiction conventions and comic cons, and they never were the right fit. They were never quite my people. And then um, I've always loved the pulps, and so when I came to Pulp Fest, I figured, you know what, these are the folks I can talk to. So I'm super glad to be here and just glad to know all of you. So we have every de decade covered. I started first Pulp Con was 2005. So to so the whole panel, how have things changed? How the PubCon has changed since 72? Well, there's certainly a lot more people, I'll tell you that, because when I went in 1972 to the first PubCon, there were less than 100 people all told. In fact, when I arrived at the motel with my wife after a two-day drive into St. Louis, we went into the motel, and there was a guy at the registration desk that appeared to be having a nervous breakdown. That was Ed Kessel. He was so nervous, he thought nobody was going to show up at the convention. And, he, and we were one, my wife and I were one of the first to show up. And he's so happy to see us. He did something that I've never seen before or since. He kept taking off his toupee and wiping his brow with it. <laughs> Usually guys that wear toupees wear because they don't want anybody, anybody to know that they're bald. But all during that convention, half of the time he had his toupee on, and half the time he was bald. I obviously can't speak to 72, but certainly from 1990, a number of the attendees were actually pulp publishers, were pulp artists, pulp writers, and some going back like Hubie Cave, Ryerson, Johnny Johnson, and others going into the 30s and maybe even a bit earlier. So that was certainly a great thrill at the time. And I think for most of us fans at the time, to sit down and talk to the people who actually brought us yeah. these pulps was nothing short yeah. of amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Yes, I still remember a convention, PulpCon, at uh, Dayton and the uh, university, where we, had, we shared an apartment. We would have an apartment with uh, two sections to it. And uh, I got to share an apartment with Hugh V. Cave and his wife, and Robert Block was, I think, in the next door. And uh, every night, Robert Block would come into our apartment, ours being Hugh Caves and myself. And I would sit listening to these giants chatting about movies, popes, and weird tales. And uh, that's the kind of special thing that can only happen at a, at a convention like this. I think for me, and this is probably, you know, as much my fault as anybody else, but I think in the early, when I first started going, uh, it seemed to me like I went for maybe four or five years before somebody even talked to me. Uh, it seemed like it was like a closed community. I don't know if that's true or not, but some of those guys didn't want anybody new coming in. They didn't want anybody that they wanted to, you know, talk to. And I remember the first person that uh, really, I would call, befriended me was Fred Cook. And he was, a, he was a super guy. Uh, he uh, took me aside, and he and I talked for a while, and from then on, you know, I began to get a little more acceptance. And when things happened the way they happened a few years back, and PulpCon became PulpFest, uh, 
those of us who were on the committee at the time decided we're not going to be that way. You know, we're going to try to be all inclusive. Everybody's trying to be friendly, talk to people, and we we make mistakes. You know, we we screw up every once in a while. I I don't personally. <laughs> Some of the other guys might. You know, so we we try real hard to uh, to, to protest a little, to show a little friendliness, and I hope uh, we've been a little successful. But I remember those first couple of years; they were tough. They were. You go, you drive to Akron or Bowling Green or somewhere, and you walk around for a while, and you're like, well, guess I'll go home, you know, so. Like I say, part of it was probably my fault because I'm such an introvert. <laughs> One big change, of course, which is obvious, was the early Pope, <clears throat> excuse me, the early Pope cons I went to. You could, <clears throat> you could buy a Pope uh, magazine at the same price as a Time magazine, just to read, and I'm talking about some pretty good posts too. Um, I remember at one time uh, there was a New York dealer, everybody thought his prices were so outrageously high. I, I was buying spider posts from him for $10 each. You know, you can't do that now. <laughs> and that has changed. But there was also a kind of feeling uh, that you could pass things on to other, other people. I remember um, going to Jack Debney's table one time and I was going to pick up a Captain Future Pope and I said, oh, this is the only one I don't have. So Jack would say, well, take it. He didn't want my money, take it, you know. And that, that, I remember that as being fairly common. Uh, there was another time, there was another, um, I had to check this, I've forgotten his name now. There was another uh, fan there and he was showing a couple outside of the uh, Dayton University is showing a couple of young people his shadow pops. These are beautiful early shadow pops. They they were in good shape, and the young guys were just aw awestruck by what what he, they were looking at. And uh, this fan whose name I'm so sorry I forgot, he just said, "Take them." And I said to him, "Boy, that was a pretty generous thing." He said, "My son wouldn't be interested in." Them. Well. Unfortunately, the prices have gone so high now. That kind of generosity just can't exist. I guess we're going nicely in order, chronologically. So, the other thing was, and I wanted to mention because one thing I'm still involved with the Pulpster is final chapters, and that's about fans, fellow fans, authors, writers, artists, etc., who have passed on. And the saddest thing I've noticed in the last few years is the number of fan names. And that's kind of sad that we're losing the fans now, but I guess old age isn't for sissies and we get older. As I know when I first met a lot of these people, we didn't have gray hair. Uh, Bill's holding on somehow. But in any case, too, i uh, like to mention a bit of memories of the people I met that really were an influence through the, the pulp historians, the two Bobs, uh, Bob Sampson, Bob Weinberg, who would always be there and willing to share their knowledge and, and everything. Uh, Sheldon Jaffrey, who wrote a real character, if there ever was one, for a lawyer. No offense to any others here. And uh, other individuals who kind of would help, if, if you weren't always shy like Jack, would take you under their wing and give you a bit of a briefing. Uh, Jack Devaney would sit down and say, come, let me show you weird tales and We'll go over a few issues and be happy to follow up with you during the calendar year. How's it going? Bob Madel and people like that. So there are certainly 
PulpCon has its collecting, its reading, but it's the socializing and the fans and the people you meet that's more enduring than the actual events themselves. Yeah, if I might say so, those of us who did research and <clears throat> wrote articles and books about the Pulps, uh, we were a, a group of people with, with absolute uh, generosity to each other. We shared things and we didn't say, oh, well, I found that out, so I'm the one who's going to print it. Uh, when I did my book, The Great Pulp Heroes, it took me like 25 years of research, but with other people. Uh, uh, people like Bob Sampson, Bob Weinberg, Will Murray, and so on. They were all, all very generous to help me with my book, even though they were doing their own, their own thing as well. And that, that's very typical of pulp fans and researchers and writers. Well, one big difference between the first pulp con and this uh, pulp fest is if you go into the dealer's room now, you see close to, or probably over 100 tables and a, and a crowd of people wandering around buying things. At the first PulpCon, when my wife and I walked in to the dealer's room, there were maybe 10 dealers in the room. Yeah. And if that happened at this convention, you would have like, turned around and walked, <laughs> walked away and went home, you know, because we have a far bigger crowd now. But back then, the only reason that, that convention was a big success was because of Nils Harden. He had bought the Fred Fitzgerald collection in Festus, Missouri, and it was an enormous collection of pulps. Evidently, Fred Fitzgerald had the news dealer write his name on the covers, Fred Fitzgerald, and hold the magazine for him. And when he died, his widow put an ad in the paper, and Ed Kessel, Earl Kussman, and Nils Harden went out to buy the stuff. Now, Ed and Earl cherry-picked. They picked hero pulps, they picked science fiction pulps. The prices were like a dime or 15 cents, cover price. Nils looked at the stuff and said, I can buy entire runs of like adventure, short stories, Argosy, Blue Book, and that's what he did for about a dime a piece. Then he sold a lot of them to Harry Noble, who I was big friends with for many years, for about a quarter to 50 cents each. And then Harry sold them to me for about five dollars each. <laughs> and then I went on eventually and sold them for a lot more to other people along the way. So that's why we have high prices right now. It's just a ch steady chain going like that. But Nils only had two tables at the head of the room. But what he did, he had stacks of pulps that covered half the dealer's room on the floor. And I remember tripping over many stacks and looking at things. I found a whole run of adventure in the 40s, about 120 issues. Nils wanted 100 bucks for it. I blew all my money at that convention, several hundred dollars. My wife was in a state of shock seeing me spend money like that because I'd always told her that I wasn't spending a lot of money on this stuff. And she, where she was seeing me spending hundreds and hundreds of dollars so that I was actually broke at that point. And that's when Rusty announced it was going to be a big art auction Sunday morning. <laughs> well, I'm an art collector, and I was broke. I had no money. And here there were nine Baumhofer paintings going up for bid on Sunday morning. And Rusty sort of cherry-picked the people he wanted in the room because he wanted to make sure he got the first Doc Savage painting for the first issue. He picked me, Kaz, Bob Weinberg, Len Hickman, Nils was there, and maybe a couple other people I forget. 
And Rusty, sure enough, won the first uh, Doc Savage, and, and now Scott Cranford owns that, because I remember Rusty selling it to him a few years ago. But then I got one painting for $105, a dime mystery painting, and I got a dime detective painting for $130. But you might ask, where did I get the money? I just said I was broke. I went to my wife and begged her <laughs> to give me the money, to loan me the money. You know, cap in hand, groveling. You know, a true collector would do anything to, to really get this stuff. So, all right, for the first $105, she, she gave it to me. She didn't want to embarrass me by turning me down or laughing at me in front of everybody watching. So she gave me $105. Then the second painting, she also agreed to give me the 130 but when I came to her for the third painting, <laughs> she told me that was it. She wasn't going to give me the money. And the reason she didn't give me the money was because she didn't like the cover image on, on the painting. It was the Dime Detective for 1934, 1935, Raymond Chandler issue, showing a little old lady sewing shut the lips of a guy with thread and, and you know. And it was kind of gruesome, but that painting's worth like $50,000 now. <laughs> yeah. It has a Raymond Chandler story in it. It's beautiful, I thought. But she wouldn't go for it. So then the rest of the paintings went for like $75, $100. You know, it's really cheap. Kaz, Kaz got four of the paintings. And the funny thing is, he's still uh, alive. And it'll be funny if he's the last man standing from that first convention because... He was banned from PulpCon by, by Rusty. I won't go into the details, but it would be funny if, he, he, if he's finally the only one left alive. Uh, later that day, Ed Kessel had a barbecue picnic for us all, and I tried to talk Ed Kessel into doing another PulpCon because I had enjoyed myself so much. And Ed said, no, he, I'm never going to do another one. He lost over 500 bucks. He said, I have a young family, I have a wife to support, I can't go through this again. He was still nervous after all, all the, that weekend. You know, he's, he, he just couldn't go through it again, not, not, not lose more money. And that's when Rusty took over. I, I see that as a point. He was the guiding light behind PulpCon from then on for about the next 30 years. Because he was behind, even if somebody was running it from, you know, uh, like Fred Cook or or one of the other guys, uh, Rusty was still behind the scenes. And I think we owe him a lot because somewhere along the way, PulpCon would have died if it wasn't for Rusty yeah, Hevlin. Yeah. There was one year in 1981, for instance, that Bob Weinberg and the Chicago people were supposed to put on the convention. I think it was 1981. Instead, they got involved in the Chicago Comic Con. I know that's sacrilege to mention comics at this convention, but... <laughs> They got involved in it, and that year there was no PulpCon. And when I saw Rusty in, uh, at the Lunacon in September, October, I griped about that, how there was no PulpCon, and it's very important that every year we have one. Rusty agreed with me, and by God, he put on another PulpCon in November 1981. It was at a small motel in Akron somewhere, and there wasn't many people, and there wasn't many dealers, but there was a PulpCon that year. And that's just one example of how Rusty kept things going. Yeah. Now, another thing I'd like to mention is often you hear at the first uh, PulpCon that there were no official guests. Well, there may not have been official guests, but there, was, there were guests that were great. Yeah. Grace Gladney was there. 
with 12 shadow paintings. I spent the whole weekend trying to talk him and sell him one of those paintings. And he said, look, I'm well to do. I'm just back from, a, from hunting big game in Africa. I don't need the money. But, but finally, when I talked him into giving me a price, he said, okay, Walker, you can have any painting you want, 1,000 bucks. Well, at that point, I'd been paying $50, $100 for pulp paintings. How am I going to give him $1,000? No way. And the other guests were Lee Brackett and uh, Edmund Hamilton, and, and they were great as, as, as unofficial guests, if that's what you want to call them. I remember having a long conversation with Lee Brackett about detective pulps. And when I finished, she laughed and said, you know something, I'm so used to people talking to me about science fiction and planet stories, you know, that I can't believe that somebody actually remembers my detective stuff. So I was sort of happy to bring that up because she did some great horror world detective uh, stories in the pulps. Uh, 50 years ago, like I said, I was one of the youngest, now I'm one of the oldest. And there's only one thing I've learned from all these years of attending PulpCon, I've attended almost all of them. And that, uh, let me quote this to you. Never take the advice of a non-collector concerning your collection, because by God, they don't know what they're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> That's it. Yeah, yeah. I was a, as a young high school student, I went to uh, the Toracon convention in 1941 in Toronto, science fiction, and they were actually throwing pulp art, like their interior illustrations to the fans to, just to catch. And there was a fan from the South, who there was an auction, who paid $100 for a Finley cover of Famous Fantastic Mysteries. We thought this guy was crazy to pay $100 for a Finley beautiful cover, you know. Things have changed. Now, another thing I was going to say, I'd forgotten, just a cursory glance at the dealer's room today, I saw something that is a big change in, in the world of folk uh, reading as well as collecting. I, I talked about the early days when you might be able to buy a, a shadow or a, a spider pulp for 10 or $15. Well, you still can as a reprint or as a replica. Today, I was just amazed at the number of reprints of, of classic material in there. And I think that's a wonderful way of preserving the material, the writer's materials, and some of the artists, and so on. And that's a big change that didn't, that just wasn't there years ago. Let me sort of rephrase this question for you. Yeah. Since you're not a long-time attendee, what made you come to Pulp Fest? Well, um, um, for those of you who don't know, I'm an artist and a writer and an illustrator. And I've been an illustrator for many, many years. And when I... Uh, when I was uh, in school for illustration was back in the 80s. And so, and my teacher had been uh, teaching illustration for 30 years. So he taught some of the techniques that the, the interior illustrators certainly for the pulps use. So I learned them. I learned scratchboard and coquille and the kind of pen and ink work that they did, not comic, but kind of pre-comic. Because the comic, as you guys know, the comic um, pen and ink and the pulp pen and inks were different. They were related, but they really aren't the same. And uh, um, so to see the art actually for real and to see the paintings, because I paint as well, is incredible. I mean, to see it on a cover is wonderful too, 
but to actually see the brush strokes helped me a great deal and it's very exciting. Um, and uh, I've just found that people are really lovely and very free with their information and knowledge and um, the, just the vibe is wonderful. Everybody's just been, and I'm shy, but um, people talk to me. Well, this is Jack down the end. You two, you <laughs> this is Jack down the end, he's also shy, so. So we, we can slack. get on well. <laughs> yeah. but, and I, I really enjoy writing for, um, writing articles about pop history, and so um, everybody knows things and know, knows more than I do, but I'm learning. So. Yeah. Well, in addition to this being the 50th anniversary of the Pulse first pulp con, it's also the 100th anniversary for uh, someone we talked about quite a bit tonight. Um, and Rusty was one of the first per per people I met when I came to PulpCon back in yeah. 2005. Yeah. And can you guys talk about his impact on the, the how he came to the PulpCon and what he did to, for PulpCon and PulpFest? Well, Rusty really believed that we needed a, a convention other than the science fiction conventions. He went to all the science fiction conventions. He's a well-known yeah. fan. But he felt there should be something for the general pulp collector, those guys who were maybe not science fiction collectors, but collected the other pulps. So he, that's why he started PulpCon. He, he, he didn't want comic books in it. He had his rules. He didn't want uh, uh, books that had nothing to do with pulps. He wanted everything to be pulp connected. And it didn't have to be science fiction. So that was a big influence because uh, a lot of science fiction conventions, you go there and everything is science fiction, science fiction, science fiction. They have no interest in any of the other pulps. In fact, when I used to go to the science fiction conventions, I used to think that science fiction pulps were the only thing that survived from those years because I never saw much of anything else. You know, I thought that the, you know, the teenage boys and the kids had saved the science fiction pulps and kept them in perfect condition, but the grown men had bought Blue Book or Black Mass and threw the things away when they finished reading them. Yeah. But I never came across them. And the thing that proved to me that that was false was Ron Goulart's book, uh, The Hard World Dicks, that came out in 1967. And I still remember the life-changing moment for me when I read that book and read those stories and realized that those pulps were out there. Black Mass was out there. Dying Detective was there. Detective Fiction Weekly. And I wrote to Ron and got all those pulps that he had, and he mailed them to me in a couple boxes. And I later went on to actually complete a full set of Black Mass, 340 issues. So I'm living proof that it's possible to go out there and get all sorts of other pulps. It doesn't have to be science fiction or hero pulps. You know, it can be other pulps. And the general interest pulps are my favorites now, I would say. Adventure, Blue Book, Short Stories, Argosy, All Stories. They're full of great stories. And the science fiction pulps are amongst the, the least expensive still. Yeah, right. To Walker's point, I got to meet Rusty as well pretty regularly in Toronto. He'd come up to see some of the early fans, uh, Mike Glickson, and some of the Torcons. But once we were musing over his nice single malt scotch, and he was saying, Tony, I don't know, my pulps, my house full of stuff here in Dayton, my son's just not interested, so... My initial response was, Daddy, and he gave that lovely little rusty chuckle, you know, the ha, 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 uh, not going to happen, so, but a lovely character when you knew him outside his official role, which was often standing on a table saying, I see pulp, I see comics over there, we need the comics out, please, meeting, meeting in five minutes, everybody out, 
So we've got a few people who are learning the, the loud voice, and good luck, Mike. You've got big shoes to wear. I, I agree with Walker that that was a, a big help to establish a pulp convention as a real pulp convention. I think eventually, though, it worked against this because we were losing people yeah. to, because there wasn't a, a broader range as we have here. Yeah. And, and, there, and the pulp fest was a, a continuity enlarging the audience. Yeah. Yeah, I got to know Rusty quite a bit as a person, more more away from PulpCon than anything else. Uh, we both lived in the Dayton area, and as he got older and got on in years, he and I became, he was very big with the uh, Montgomery County Public Library. He did the book sales every year, and one year he talked me into coming down and helping, so I went down and helped, and what it entailed was me going around and picking up all these books, arm load after arm load, after arm load, and him sitting there writing a little notation on a piece of paper. That went on for a couple of years, and finally he ended up dropping that. But I got to the point where uh, I was helping him out with other things, uh, doing, you know, doing around the house because he couldn't get around so much anymore. And towards the end, when we became Pulp Fest, I remember going over to his house that day and telling him, you know. He had made a comment to me earlier on that I talked to him and I said, Rusty, PulpCon's dying. You know, we need to do something different because some of the people that are running it right now aren't really that invested in running it. They were, everything was cut and dry. It was either black or white. There was no give or take on either end. If you were, this is our rule, or it was an autocratic run, it didn't go so well with people and they were, the attendance was falling. And I went over and he looked at me and he said, well, if you think you can do something about it, do it, start your own. So I did. And I went over to his house after we did it and I told him to knock on the door and I was kind of leery, leery of what was going to happen because I had been threatened with a lawsuit because of PulpCon and Pulp Fest by Bob Gordon. I don't know if you remember him or not, but he, uh, Russ came to the door and I said, what are, the, what are you doing? And he let me in and we talked for a while and he said, I didn't know you were going to crush it. And I said, you know, I wasn't crushing anything. It's, it's for you as much as anybody else. And he didn't come for a few years. And I maybe if you read Kurt's piece in the, the Pulse, which was very well done, by the way. Uh, we finally convinced him to come. Gay Haldeman and I did a few years ago. And when he came into the room, he got a standing ovation. People were glad to see him, you know. It was... Uh, Gay said that uh, he talked about that the rest of his life, that he was uh, so thankful that the people appreciated what he had done. Yeah. So I got to know him that way a little bit. It was, yeah. he was, he can be a little cranky. <laughs> yeah. So can I. It, it was Rusty who, who formed this Doc Savage Club meeting back in 1967. And I really do think that gave him the idea of, wouldn't it be great to have a, a, an annual con convention where we could get together and chat about pulps? Do you feel the con's gotten a little broader now, not just focused on pulps, but new pulp, but yeah. uh, fan fiction reprints and, yeah. and things yeah. like that? Yeah. Yeah. I think I think at one time people thought the pulps would die. They, they're, they are pulp paper, they will crumble, they will disappear. And, and here we are in 2022, collecting, talking about, 
them and and, and they're they're still precious to us. Yeah, these that's, conventions. That's amazing. You know? These conventions are so yeah, important. Yeah. They're called like the dime novel yeah. uh, collectors. They yeah. did not have conventions, and wow. as a result, yeah. the dime novels are dead now. Yeah. yeah. If I had a table yeah. full of dime novels, yeah. you'd probably all walk by them yeah. laughing. Yeah. You know, yeah. a, even at a dollar apiece. Yeah. Nobody collects yeah. dime novels yeah. anymore. Yeah. So these conventions are very important, and your support is very necessary to keep this thing going. Well, you know, you, you mentioned the uh, you know the hard boiled dicks. There were the, some uh, books uh, uh, of collections of pulps and so on, but as I mentioned, you go there, you go in the dealer's room today, and it's just filled with reprints of, of pulp material. Uh, that's going to go on for decades and decades. You know? Yeah, we live in a golden age of pulp yeah. reprints right now. I mean, yeah. Matt yeah. Morin is doing great work with Steger yeah. Books on on reprinting. He's reprint. He's past the 600 bookmark, I think. He, yeah, he has, yeah, you know, yeah. dozens and dozens, scores and scores of pulp reprints. Yeah. Uh, and it's not just Matt Moore and Ed Hulse has done it, John Gunnison's doing it, Tom Roberts has done it, it's yeah. uh, Rich Harvey. So this is the golden age we, we yeah. have of pulp reprints. And they're also, they're also reprinting the, the great artwork and, and beautiful new editions. Yeah, I wanted to yeah. say something about that yeah. really briefly. Um, one of my interests is just to make sure that some of these style types don't die. Because um, just as contemporary artists, everyone, many people have gone to digital art. And digital art, it can be beautiful, absolutely, and very skillful, but it doesn't feel exactly the same. And so my interest personally is to try to get that feel in hand-done art so that it, it feels like the old stuff, because nobody is. So when, you know, that's just really important to me. And I don't know if it's important to anyone else, but I don't want to see that old style of pen and ink illustration die. And I don't want to see that scratchboard type die. Nor what, what is it that appeals to you about that? It's, uh, it's a type of illustration that's evocative. People still love it and they associate it with, now they associate it with comics because that's pretty much one of the few places you'll still see it. You will see interior illustrations in pencil and digital, and you will see pen and ink as well, but there's something about the way that pulp art was done. It was very specific. Um, the first book I published in 1990 with illustrations, without thinking about it, I did a series of illustrations for this book that were very pulpy in, in the way that um, they used to have uh, images of the characters along in a story. I just naturally did that, and the publisher thought that was too old-fashioned and they didn't want it. Um, but it's still evocative and it still works. And so that's what I do with my books and I do for clients as well is to try to get that, keep it. Because everyone in here loves pulp art, you know, and, and it's, it's just as a historian of that, it's important to me. Yeah, pul pulp art, I've always been interested in pulp art and I think I started collecting around 1970 at a Lunacon. I was at, at the science fiction convention and I happened to be in the auction room just watching and the room was completely crowded, maybe 300 people in there. And a pulp painting, the first I'd ever seen, came up for auction, $50 minimum bid. Nobody bid on that. It was a complete detective from 1939, large, uh, beautiful piece of work. And I was so stunned I didn't bid on it either. But when the guy came out of the room carrying the carrying the canvas, I said, I'll give you 50 bucks for that, and he took it. I went home, got on the train to go home, 
and uh, Jack Irwin was with me, who just, he just died recently. And Jack and I were talking about the painting and we got so absorbed in it, we went by Trenton, our hometown, into <laughs> Philadelphia. And we tried to convince the conductor we'd made a mistake and missed our stop in Trenton. And he still made us pay from Philly to go back to Trenton. <laughs> Then when I showed my wife the painting, she was not pleased when she saw it. <laughs> I, I've heard that um, when, the, when the pulps were active, they'd get a lot of the interior art and just throw it away. Yeah. That, and that, then they burnt it up. And, th that's um, absolutely true. And, and they even did it with the cover paintings. They, they destroyed it. And nobody, nobody was interested in it. Uh, every now and then you'll see it, an, ad, an ad in the pulp uh, magazine, like Adventure, had their paint, cover paintings up for $10 minimum a bid. That, that is like peanuts. Even back then, it wasn't a lot of money. And I was always impressed how, back in the early 70s, I was managing to pick up this stuff at 50 or $100 each. Nobody else was interested. In fact, some other collectors would look at me like I was crazy because I spent $100 on a pulp paint. Yeah. Isn't that funny? It's yeah. really, well, it really seems yeah. strange yeah. to me. Yeah. And people yeah. are losing track of how it was done. I see on social media people will post pulp, images of pulp and you know, talk about what it was and where it came from, but they don't understand necessarily how it was made. And I saw one that was a, it was a Hannes Bach interior piece, and they were saying, this must have taken hours and hours to do, and I, I answered and I said, it didn't. I know that style, and I know how quick that is. It was coquille, which is something that uh, they used in the newspapers all the time. It's a bumpy paper, and you used it with a, a waxy crayon like a china crayon. So once the piece of artwork was create, was designed, then to get it done would have taken, I probably took him a half an hour. And so, um, you know, it's that knowledge that we just, you know, I mean, that's good art. I'm not saying it wasn't, but I know, like Finley working full size for the illustration is insane for Scratchboard. I can tell you that. Scratchboard should be done at least um, one and a half times bigger or two times bigger because um, the lines close up when you make it smaller for reproduction and it looks better. But he worked full size, which means that he had to work um, more accurately and his lines, his lines were very solid. I've copied um, Finley work to see how he did it. Uh, he was very solid, very, and he did, he worked fast, which is crazy for Scratchboard, but there it is, you know. Yeah, I wanted to, I know we're getting close to time, I wanted to tell you a couple of things that happened to me. After all the years that I've been coming and all, there are a few things that stick in your mind. And aside from all the authors I've met, uh, my, my view is Westerns, I love Western authors, I've met a lot of them. But what was that convention, was that St. Louis where Cusman had the, the convention was on the second floor and there was no elevator? Was that... St. Louis, because I made, I, mean, I learned a lot of new words that day. <laughs> that was Dayton and the elevator at the Kennedy Ballroom. No, this was this was St. Louis, I think, because I drove I drove a long way to get there. I think I thought it was St. Louis. Maybe I'm wrong. I don't know. I, but I, the elevator died, and, and I was helping Rusty out the back that back long staircase. Yeah. Because I thought he was going to have a stroke trying to carry all of his boxes yeah. down the uh, back staircase. And anyway, one of the other things I remember, and I'll never forget this, was uh, San Jose. Rusty had a convention in San Jose for the people that would not come to this, in this neck of the woods, so we went to San Jose. And it was in San Jose State University, and the restrooms, I don't know, they were like army. 
barracks. You know, there were no individual stock shower stalls or anything. And excuse me, ladies, but the urinal was just a trough. You know, and it just seemed like every morning when I went in there, Forrest J. Ackerman was in there. And there was this little old guy from Michigan, I remember, I can't remember his name, but he came in the last day we were there and he, he looked at Forrest and he, he said, man, you must really like red because you've been wearing that same shirt for four days. Forrest would go in, get his hand wet, do this, do this, and he's done. You know, so I, I'll never forget that. That was just, it still sticks with me. I don't know why. You know, before this panel, some guys were asking me, am I really going to talk about some of the crazy things I've seen? And some of those things are so outrageous, I cannot talk about them. <laughs> but I've decided to go ahead and mention at least one of them right now. In the early 70s, sometimes, I was friends with a guy, I won't mention his name, we were real pals, and he burned out real fast. He lasted a couple of years and then disappeared. But it was around 2 o'clock in the morning, and Daryl Richardson had a bunch of St. John paintings in a room. And there was no security. The door was wide open, so we strolled in. And my friend said to me, why don't we take some of these paintings? There was no security guard. There was no cameras. This is the early 70s. And I, I stood there for a moment and said, nah, we'd never get away with it. <laughs> I mean, we, you'd have to keep the painting in a dark closet and never show it to anybody else because these are well-known paintings, you know? So I probably stopped that guy from stealing those paintings just, just by pointing out the logical fact that you can't get away with it. N nothing more, moral, no morals about it. I didn't say, no, that's not the right thing to do. I, I took a look at it strictly as a collector. Now nah, I'll never get away with it, you know? That's like stealing the Mona Lisa. You yeah, couldn't keep, yeah, right. have to keep it in the dark. Right, right. And then another, another time, uh, I had a good friend. Uh, he, when I arrived at the convention, he had been there a whole week ahead of me. And I said, well, Christ, well, David, well, why, why are you still here? You know, what have you been doing for a week? He had been carrying on an affair with one of the maids. <laughs> and I said, you know something? I go to these conventions to buy books and pulps. Sex is out of it. I could lay off a week for that. I mean, come on. And I thought he was crazy for doing that. Why waste your time on such a thing like that? You know, you got 51 weeks of the rest of the year to do things like that. Okay. <laughs> Try and talk that. Had to say that. See Walker afterwards for more stories. <laughs> True confessions. Yeah. Well, thank you all. And to another 50 years. Okay. Thank you. You've been listening to a Pulp Event podcast brought to you by the PulpNet, your link to the online world of the pulp magazines for over 25 years. Please visit us online at thepulp.net. Also, look for the PulpNet on Facebook and on Twitter. Thank you for listening, and keep reading the pulps. This pulp event podcast is copyright 2022 by William P. Lampkin, all rights reserved.